At the beginning of this century, two last glittering prizes remained to be won, the North and the South Poles. Then suddenly and unexpectedly, in 1909, an American on a dog sledge got to the North Pole first. Those damn Americans in their dog sleds. This, of course, is British national treasure Sir David Attenborough. Take it away, Big Dave. Only one goal now remained, the South Pole. In 1902, Captain Scott had got to within 430 miles of it. Six years later, an Irishman, Shackleton, turned back only 100 miles short of it. So, by 1910, when Captain Scott had raised the backing to try again, the entire nation was in a high state of excited expectation. Apparently, he had no rival. He was bound to win. What nobody in Britain knew was that there was, in fact, a most serious competitor about to show his hand, a Norwegian called Roald Amundsen. Dun, dun, dun. And what was fueling this race to the pole? Their food. Wait, do we have to stop listening to Attenborough's story time? I was really relaxing into that. Sorry, Nikki. Alas, Sir David, while he tells the story of the race to the pole, he doesn't tell our story, which is what those explorers were eating and how that decided their fates. We, of course, are Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I'm Nicola Twilley. And this episode, we're still dining at the top of the world. Or the bottom, depending on which way you're looking at it. But the food scene in the Antarctic is quite different from the Arctic. This episode, we're telling the tale of the intrepid men. Yes, they were basically all men who were the first to step foot on a continent that no humans had ever before visited. A continent that was totally inhospitable to flora and fauna alike. And the destiny of those heroic men was pretty much determined by food. This episode is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation for the Public Understanding of Science, Technology, and Economics, as well as our awesome supporters. Gastropod is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network in partnership with Eater. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. One of the great pleasures in life is traveling, especially when there's great food waiting at your destination. When months of planning, preparation, and exploration all culminate into one perfect bite, there's nothing better. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Support for this show comes from Nine West. Winter's finally coming to a close, but you might still fall the very ground beneath your feet with the hottest new trends from Nine West. Nothing beats the confidence the perfect little piece can give you. And their new collections of footwear, apparel, and accessories will let you take on the world in style. Use their Need It Now edit, also known as the Nine edit, to search effortlessly through trends like Western-style boots, loafers, and more. It's time to wear our confidence, ladies. We can't be contained, because this spring at Nine West, we are infinite. Buy now and get 15% off with code PODCAST24. Author Jason Anthony took his first trip to Antarctica a couple decades ago. Yeah, I fell in love with it really from the first minute. So I came in late August. That's towards the end of the Antarctic winter. And so the sun was still just kind of creeping up over the horizon. In the Antarctic, as in the Arctic, you have basically a six-month day and a six-month night. You know, you don't really have spring or fall. 
There's no vegetation. There's no foliage. It's just it's a landscape of ice and stone. It's a desert, essentially, even though it's a desert made of ice. And it's austere and incredibly beautiful. The quality of the light, is at that time of year especially, just made me fall in love with it hard. There seem to be two things that everyone who spends time in Antarctica ends up obsessed with. One, how incredibly alien and gorgeous the landscape is. And two, food. Jason ended up combining these two topics and writing a book about the Antarctic landscape through the lens of food. It's called Hoosh, Roast Penguin, Scurvy Day, and Other Stories of Antarctic Cuisine. The funny thing is that historically, there wasn't an Antarctic cuisine because there were no humans there. Until the 1700s, as far as we know, very few humans had ever even seen the continent and nobody had ever eaten dinner on it. It's the one place that European explorers actually discovered. You know, everything that we claim to discover had been long occupied, right? But not Antarctica. There's some evidence from oral history that potentially Maori from what's now New Zealand spotted Antarctica, but the first Europeans to get close to the continent were the crew of Captain Cook's second round-the-world voyage. When he got home, Cook wrote up the accounts of the sea ice he encountered at the bottom of the world, and the large seal and whale populations living there. And people were inspired by his accounts of all those large mammals. Hey, look, sources of food, fur, and oil. And so sealers and whalers started heading down there too. The first glimpse of the mainland, without really knowing what they were seeing, was 1820. The um, sealers and whalers had been down for a little while at that point, but again, just around the sub-Antarctic islands, especially the sealers, just devastating the seal populations for the fur uh, and then eating the other ones. And penguins as well. Both seals and penguins are being taken for their oil. You get about a pint of oil from a from an Adelie penguin, in case you were wondering. Before electricity, all that marine mammal oil was what Americans and Europeans used to light the darkness. It was the oil and gas of its day. So it might have seemed kind of like there was quite a rich ecosystem full of large creatures in Antarctica, but actually that wasn't exactly the case. Everything that we think of as the life, the wildlife there is ocean-bound, right? Seals, penguins, whales, krill. But the largest terrestrial animal in Antarctica is a wingless midge, you know, a couple millimeters long. There's no life there, no terrestrial life to speak of, aside from mosses and grasses on the peninsula. The peninsula is a rocky, mostly ice-covered tongue of land jutting off Antarctica closer to South America. It's the closest point on Antarctica to another continent. It's about 620 miles away from Tierra del Fuego at the tip of South America across the Drake Passage. That's considered one of the most treacherous stretches of water in the world, with waves up to 40 feet high. The peninsula itself is about three times the size of Florida. It's where many of the heroic age explorers landed, where the majority of the research stations are still today, and where basically all the cruise ships go. And it's a solid 800 miles trek from the peninsula to the South Pole. And so once you leave the coast, then you're, you're basically heading to the moon, and you're relying on, on the food that you can carry with you. Traveling inland uh, into Antarctica is one of the hardest things you can do at that, at that stage of human history. There's, there's no, nothing waiting for you except ice to melt and air to breathe. Sounds like a dream destination. You or I might decide we would rather not. But fortunately, there were some eager young men determined to prove themselves who wanted to give it a go. The South Pole, as David Attenborough said, was still a glittering prize. And so they all set out on expeditions. There were dozens of them, mostly European, but some Australian and even one Japanese, over roughly a two-decade span. This time period from about 1898 to 1922 was called the Heroic Age. And it's a point in time where 
Antarctica was largely undiscovered and had only previously been sighted by people in, in passing vessels or sailors, whalers, a couple of expedition ships. And so these early heroic era expeditions were established to explore the area, to claim it for nations, to uh, undertake science and um, further discoveries on the continent. It was a hugely exciting time. Lizzie Meek is the Collections Conservation Manager for the Antarctic Heritage Trust. She's based in New Zealand, which is also one of the closest points on the globe to Antarctica, and it's the place many heroic age explorers pass through on their southbound voyages. Her organization preserves the remaining traces of these heroic age expeditions. The dawn of the 20th century was prime time for these expeditions for a few different reasons. One, there were finally ships with sturdy enough hulls to be able to navigate the ice-filled seas around Antarctica. But the other real technological advancements that made the pole seem as though it might actually be within reach were to do with food. One critical development was the invention of canning. We've talked about this multiple times on Gastropod. Canning itself was invented in the early 1800s. The can opener was invented in 1855 to get out all the food stuck in those cans. Yeah, the the advent of preserved foods provided a huge boost to Antarctic exploration. With that, uh, you could go anywhere and not have to rely entirely on the wild foods. The other real breakthrough was something to cook that food on while you were on the road. Or the ice. The Primus stove was basically the ancestor of every camping stove that's existed since then. You know, before that, what you might call a camping stove was basically just like a large candle. There wasn't much heat or much intensity. This new stove was invented in 1892 by a Swedish factory mechanic. It was basically a kerosene burner, and it was way hotter and stronger and more focused than a candle, and it didn't get all sooty. And yeah, it's like the kind of stoves you might cook over on a camping trip today. But it wasn't the only hot new innovation in the Antarctic kitchen. The Nansen cooker, uh, designed by Fritjof Nansen, the great Norwegian Arctic explorer, was designed to work with that stove. And it wasn't just a pot that sits on the stove because so much of that heat is lost. You know, when you heat a pot on the stove, a lot of that heat, you know, hits the bottom and then it uh, flies up around the uh, sides of the pot. He designed a sh- sort of a, a shell around the central pot and that would, he would fill with snow. The snow actually acts as insulation, so the food inside the pot heats up faster, and the snow in the outside layer melts. This means you could heat up your food more efficiently and melt water to drink, two things you needed to survive, all provided by that one new Nansen cooker. Even though this snazzy stove-cooker combo weighed in at a hefty 25 pounds of extra baggage, it was so much more efficient than the old candle-style version that it made a huge difference. Weight was something that the explorers worried about. Weight, fuel, pack. All of it took a lot of foresight because an Antarctic expedition would typically last quite a long time. I think two years is a typical length for the early heroic age exploration. You know, typically you arrive in the late summer when the sea ice is broken up enough for you to get to the, the part of the coast you want to get to. And then you basically settle in for the winter. And then you don't start your initial explorations until the following summer. This timeline is because you could only really explore in the relatively balmy summer months, and you would want to maximize that time. But you couldn't sail to the Antarctic in the winter. You didn't want your sailing time to eat into your exploring time, so you sailed the summer before, huddled indoors in a hut all winter, and got going as soon as you could once the weather permitted. And really, you needed to prepare for even longer than two years just in case you got stuck in the ice. And to do that, Kitsap wooden buildings were loaded onto ships and range of supplies 
for two to three to four years, perhaps. They, they didn't always know how long they would be there for or quite when they would manage to get out, but a, a large number of supplies. So the packing list looks like prefab little sheds and lots and lots of food. But what food exactly? So there was a real combination of, of dried and jarred and tinned food. Every expedition ship in the heroic age was just jammed to the gills, both below decks and on top of the decks, with with crates of food, everything from delicacies to just your basic lunch tongue. Yes, that popular lunch meat, canned tongue. Or, you know, whatever, various canned meats. And then there's a lot of biscuits and flour and, you know, your basic provisions. So you know, simple foods that pack tightly uh, and last a long time. That, that's the mantra, basically. That said, the expeditions would always bring some alcohol for celebrations and some treats, puddings and cakes to keep up morale. While doing conservation work on one of the tins left in a heroic-era hut, Lizzie's colleagues came across a classic British treat, fruitcake. And we were able to see that um, inside the, the wrapper, the fruitcake was in quite wonderful condition, actually. It looked as new. It smelled very definitely like fruitcake. It also smelled quite definitely like rancid butter, and that's not something that you would... <laughs> want to even consider eating, but if you just looked at it, it was like a, a Christmas cake that you would you would purchase today. But all of this imported food, biscuits and flour and tins of meat and the occasional fruitcake, it wasn't enough. You just simply couldn't cram enough food on a ship to feed an entire expedition for years. Plus, it was expensive, and by the time they set sail, these expeditions were often already deeply in debt, just gathering all the equipment and men. But fortunately for the men, once they set up huts on the coast near their boats, there was plenty of wildlife along the shoreline and in the nearby waters, and not only did those animals provide survival food, but they also added to the variety of what could be served for dinner. There were two main kinds of seal on the menu in the Antarctic. Crab eaters, which were petite and apparently had blubber with melon flavor notes, and then the big guys. These are Weddell seals, which you know are hundreds of pounds and heavily fortified with a thick layer of blubber uh, for swimming comfortably in Antarctic waters, which are usually you know about 28, 29 degrees. And seals and penguins, an emperor penguin, if I recall, can feed about 20 people in a meal. And they're about 90 pounds. Seals and penguins hanging out on land either ignored the new two-legged creatures approaching them, or they found humans kind of fascinating. What they didn't feel was any fear at all. They have no experience of predators on land. All the predators are in the water. Orcas, leopard seals, that sort of thing. And uh, on land, you can walk right up to, as I have, uh, seals and penguins. What I did not do is what these explorers did, which is knock them on the head or shoot them. And to be fair... Most of the men felt terrible about it because it's like going up and and knocking a golden retriever on the head. You know, it's just, it's, sorry, (laughs) but it's terrible. And these are just cheerful, sweet, curious animals, you know. But they represent the kind of food that these guys needed. And exploration was a cruel process, especially down there. Honestly, this was the worst part of Jason's book. The penguins especially seemed to love music, and the men found they could lure them in to be killed just by playing the cornet. And even without the melodious trumpet music, one explorer pointed out that the penguins even saw him, the human, as kind of a friend or at least a potential protector. They were scared of the dogs on the trip. Dogs were brought along to pull the sleds. He said that they they really understood what was going on, that these four-legged beasts were killing them. And so if if they had a a chance, they they sometimes would hide between his legs. They could see the men were trying to control the dogs, that sort of thing. So adorable. And yet these heroic age explorers looked at penguins and saw dinner. They really loved the penguin eggs. 
so they would go through thousands of eggs. And, and there are these heartbreaking moments where, like, guys don't know if a ship's coming to rescue them. And so they would start harvesting thousands of eggs. Like, basically, every every egg that gets laid, they're harvesting and storing in barrels or whatever, you know. And, uh, and then the ship shows up. And all of those barrels of eggs are left behind. And a generation of penguins isn't born. It sounds horrible, sure, but to the explorers, it was either that or starve. Good news is that the local penguin populations recovered from the effects of human harvesting at the time, though frankly they're now threatened by climate change, but that's a different story. So the contents of the Antarctic pantry were basically tinned and dried food and coastal wildlife. That's what the expeditions would survive on while they holed up through the dark Antarctic winter, after they arrived, and before they started their explorations. Like we said, they basically brought along these small wooden huts with them that they'd set up as their base camp. They all had to live in these huts, and they had to cook in the huts. And so there'd be a tiny galley kitchen for food prep. Jason saw this for himself. Some are still around today. And you can look into the kitchen area, and you know you get Mars lunch tongue, you know, little cans of, of odd little a selection of some of their canned goods on the shelves. Next to the Discovery Hut, there's a couple seal carcasses, you know, laying next to the door. And, uh, you know, we're talking over a century ago, well over a century. And it wasn't a lot of room at all to move around. So they did a tremendous job in, in tiny cramped quarters of pushing out meals for so many men every day. And, of course, there were several meals a day and bread that they baked and then the night watchman would be up overnight sort of eating hot sardines off the stove as one of his little treats. <laughs> Sardine snacks aside, food in the huts was typically prepared by the expedition chef. And it wasn't as basic as you might imagine. One of my favorite cooks from the literature is a mysterious character named Roseau, who was Jean-Baptiste Charcot's cook on the, his first expedition. Charcot was a French medical doctor who led one of the earliest European expeditions to Antarctica during the Heroic Age. He was trained as a scientist, too, and he described more than 600 miles of coastline, and he created new nautical charts, and he came home with lots of samples and data for the French Natural History Museum. They'd found Roseau in Rio, I think, Rio de Janeiro. He just sort of wandered up the ship and, and got the work, and they went down to the Antarctic, and, and uh, they said they never knew his real name. They never knew his age. They didn't know his backstory. He was an excellent cook. He could do, you know, desserts and perfect croissants, you know, for this French audience in a ship trapped in the ice in the Antarctic for a year. That is pretty shocking to think that he could create croissant out there on the ice from their supplies that they'd schlepped all that way. But he did, and he also used penguin and cormorant eggs to make cakes and custards, and he roasted penguin cutlets, and he made a very popular black pudding from seal blood and liver. He was beloved and and also kind of this mysterious character. Charcot said they wouldn't be surprised if he said, oh, you want to get to the pole? I can tell you how to get there. Like he'd just been everywhere and done it, done everything, you know? And so he was sort of, he's like the archetype of, of the great Antarctic cook. So far, so delicious, but things became much more existential once summer came and parties of men would set off inland with sleds. We've got the life and death stories of the race to the pole coming up after the break. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You know that feeling when you try a new food for the first time and your mouth experiences these brand new flavors and sensations? It's like, wow, I didn't even know a food could do that. This happened to me when I went on this amazing trip to the northern tip of Queensland in Australia. We were so far north that we were off the country's electrical grid. And we were staying on a banana farm where they grew dozens and dozens of different kinds of bananas. In the morning, I woke up to a basket full of some of the most bananas bananas you can imagine. 
red ones that were super soft and sweet like raspberries, and small finger-sized ones that were sort of floral, and even blue ones that tasted exactly like vanilla ice cream. Life's too short to pass up extraordinary experiences. And if you're ready to take your next big food adventure, go there with Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash reserve to learn more. Support for this show comes from Nine West. Winter's finally coming to a close, but you might still fall the very ground beneath your feet with the hottest new trends from Nine West. Nothing beats the confidence the perfect little piece can give you. And their new collections of footwear, apparel, and accessories will let you take on the world in style. Use their Need It Now Edit, also known as the Nine Edit, to search effortlessly through trends like Western-style boots, loafers, and more. It's time to wear our confidence, ladies. We can't be contained. Because this spring at Nine West, we are infinite. Buy now and get 15% off with code PODCAST24. The reason all those men traveled to Antarctica wasn't to hang out in the huts and eat baked seal in a beautiful pastry crust. It was to get outside to do scientific research, and most of all, to try to be the very first person in the world to make it to the South Pole. And that meant they had to travel far outside, often hauling their own sleds. Just being in Antarctica, even before the sledding, you needed to eat a lot more than you usually would. Outside of the hut, it was really, really cold. So cold that on occasion, the men's teeth literally froze and cracked in their mouths. Your body responds to cold weather, you know, with a demand for more calories. So you're gonna, your body's going to want to eat more. But once you start doing the work of sledging, of hauling a sled across Antarctica then you're looking at its most extreme to say 10,000 calories a day. More, it's calculated as, as more demanding than the Tour de France, for example. It's literally hard to shove that many calories into your body on a daily basis. You need food that's basically just a compact, portable brick of energy. And that has a name, pemmican. Pemmican was vital for the sledging expeditions into the heart of the Antarctic. It wasn't eaten so much around base. You know, they had other uh, heavier foods for that. Pemmican is an incredible Native American technology. It goes back millennia that was essentially dried and shredded meat, uh, lean meat, so be bison, you know, elk, uh, moose, you know, what have you, along with fats from the animals. So you butcher, say, your bison, you dry the meat, you shred it, uh, maybe even get it down to a powder if you could, and then mix it with fat on a 50-50 ratio. And Native Americans would were smart enough to mix berries of whatever kind they had on hand, Saskatoons or, you know, what have you, dried berries. But most Europeans didn't recreate the Native American style of pemmican. They created an industrial version. It had been first kind of designed for some of the Arctic expeditions of the 19th century. So by the time Robert Scott went down with his first expedition in 1901, for example, they had sort of canned pemmican made from beef and beef fat. The brilliance of pemmican was that it was the most amount of calories you could pack into the least amount of weight, uh, which is the gold standard for traveling into a landscape that's trying to kill you. And so without pemmican, sledging to the South Pole or exploring you know, more deeply into the Antarctic would have been impossible. Pemmican was the key ingredient in the most iconic Antarctic dish of all, Hoosh. So hoosh is 
in its simplest terms, was a, a soup made of pemmican and melted snow. Hoosh is a kind of funny word. It almost sounds like, whoosh, we can finally eat. But it's a relative of the word hooch, which is moonshine. And that, Jason says, is a corruption of the name of a tribe in Alaska and also the European-style liquor that they made after colonization. But for inexplicable reasons, British polar explorers used the word to mean a sort of porridge or stew for the ravenous. You'd melt the snow to get it boiling, throw a block of pemmican in. And if you had some extras, you'd throw in maybe some biscuit, maybe some chunks of penguin, you know, whatever it is you had uh, on hand. But it was basically a kind of a sludgy soup of meat and fat and, you know, whatever extras you can throw in. And that was calories. It's the kind of thing that if you were to eat it now, if you're healthy, uh, healthy and happy, it just tastes like you're eating this like fatty sludge. It's way too many calories to comfortably eat normally. But once you start burning several thousand calories a day in the cold, hauling a sled, doing other hard work in, in that environment, your body recognizes it as, as exactly the kind of food you need. Hoosh was so prized that explorers developed a complex system to ensure it was divided evenly by having the men choose their mugs blind. Basically, the cook would pour out all the servings into mugs, and then one crew member would turn away so he couldn't see the mugs. The cook would point at a mug and say, Whose? The crew member would say a name, and that's how the hoosh was doled out, to avoid unseemly rows over this precious commodity. This dinner game was called Shackleton's Shut-Eye, though it does seem like everyone, not just Shackleton's crew, divvied up dinner the same way. But the tradition likely goes back much further because there seems to be a similar communal food-sharing custom among the Inuit. But even with all the planning and all the pemmican and the nifty stove to melt water and cook hoosh on, not to mention the psychological tricks to make sure there were no food fights, the explorers still couldn't easily sustain themselves all the way to the South Pole. They couldn't carry enough, for starters, so they relied on a complicated system where support teams would go on mini-expeditions to drop food at set intervals along the route, setting up caches or food depots for the actual team that was heading to the pole to find and eat on their way back. So basically big piles of food every like 10 to 15 miles along the route toward the South Pole, for example. And so they would do these back-and-forth trips from the main base and set a pile of food, go back, get some more, set a, set a pile of food farther on. And of course, you have to calculate all the food it takes to do that lane of depots. And uh, so there was a lot of math and you wanted to keep your men alive and able to work, but not an ounce more, right? Because you were riding the line, you had the timing for one thing, you have to be home in your hut before the winter falls and you want to cut the weight down as much as possible. And you can bring a lot of food and not travel very far, or you can uh, bring less and risk starvation because of the amount of calories you're burning just to exist in that cold and to haul those sledges. It was an exquisitely nuanced calculation, and if anything went wrong, then you were left balancing on the knife edge of starvation. Even when things went mostly to plan, the explorers were often wildly hungry. Ernest Shackleton is one of the most famous explorers of the time. During one of his failed expeditions to reach the pole, he and three of his crewmates had turned around before reaching it and were on their way back. They just didn't have enough food. They were down to four biscuits a day. At one point, Shackleton gave one of his precious four biscuits to his crewmate, Frank Wilde, who was super weak from diarrhea. Frank was overwhelmed with gratitude. He wrote in his diary, quote, I do not suppose that anyone else in the world can thoroughly realize how much generosity and sympathy was shown by this. I do, all caps, 
By God, I shall never forget it. Also, as they marched, Shackleton and his guys would do what seems to me almost like torture. They'd describe feasts that they'd eaten in the past. They'd fantasize about epic feasts they'd enjoy in the future. One such fantasy, quote, There will be melon, grilled trout and butter sauce, roast chicken with plenty of livers, a proper salad with eggs and very thick dressing, green peas and new potatoes, a saddle of mutton, fried suet pudding, peaches a la melba. But wait, there's more. This banquet would also include egg curry. Plum pudding and sauce, Welsh rarebit, queen's pudding, cream cheese and celery, fruit, nuts, port wine, milk, and cocoa. Boom. Despite what seems like kind of a nightmarish time on the ice, Shackleton and his crew survived this trip and came back for more. A few years later, they set sail on the Endurance Expedition. The goal of this one was to set up camp and then cross all of Antarctica. Unfortunately, they never even made it to the continent. The Endurance sunk in the ice. The men were stuck on an ice floe. All 28 of them crammed themselves into lifeboats and rowed to the nearest land, which was called Elephant Island. And then six of them, including Shackleton, set off in one of the lifeboats, a vessel called the James Caird. It's a a 22-foot dory, essentially, that six men, Shackleton and and five others, sailed from Elephant Island, where he'd left the rest of his shipwrecked crew. The six men sailed for 17 days in this little wooden boat in some of the worst seas in the world. It's an incredible, incredible uh, voyage. You know, they should have died 100 times in that passage. But they they had their hoosh, you know, two or three times a day, just kind of jammed it under the decking of this little modified dory, and that kept them alive. They drink it, you know, boiling hot, basically. Meanwhile, the other 22 men waited it out on Elephant Island for months, not knowing whether Shackleton's desperate rescue mission was going to work. They were in pretty desperate straits and lost one of their guys to scurvy, and a couple others were right on the knife's edge uh, in terms of dying from scurvy. The Elephant Island crew may have been running low on food and getting sick from malnutrition, but they did have some inspirational reading material. They had what was called a penny cookery book. It had somehow survived everything that had happened. And so each night, one and exactly and only one recipe was read aloud. Jason says they read it like it was a passage from the Bible. They'd discuss the recipe, they'd propose changes and amendments to it, they'd debate it, and then they'd dream of such incredible meals. Fortunately, this story has a happy ending. Shackleton made it, everyone was rescued, and there was roast beef and plum pudding all round. Shackleton's food-obsessed expeditions are the stuff of Antarctic lore, but he never made it to the South Pole. Two other famous Antarctic explorers were the ones who ended up competing for that particular prize. Like David Attenborough said, they were the British Robert Falcon Scott and the Norwegian Roald Amundsen. Amundsen had been bitterly disappointed by the American achievement in the North, He had been planning to drift across the North Pole in the pack ice. And indeed, as Captain Scott now headed south in his ship, the Terra Nova, everyone thought that Amundsen was still intent upon crossing the North Pole that way. But actually, Amundsen decided that since he couldn't be the first to the North Pole, damn it, he'd be the first to the South Pole instead. So he turned his ship around and started sailing south. When Amundsen aboard his ship, the Fram, got to Madeira, he sent a telegram to Captain Scott, who by this time had reached Melbourne. It said simply, beg leave to inform you, preceding Antarctica. The secret was out. Amundsen had changed his plans. And the race was on. 
Scott was a handsome British naval officer. He was a popular hero already from his first voyage to the Antarctic with Shackleton. Together, they'd made important scientific discoveries and got to just 530 miles away from the pole. Unlike Scott, Amundsen had experience at both poles. He'd been on the first Antarctic expedition to ever overwinter on the continent, and he'd also spent time in the Arctic as well. He led the first expedition to traverse Canada's Northwest Passage. And both of those experiences were extremely important to Amundsen's polar preparations. On that first Antarctic overwintering, young Amundsen was a first mate, and the expedition doctor was an American called Frederick Cook. It was Cook who had spent time in the Arctic and who had learned from the Inuit how to prevent scurvy. And he didn't convince the expedition leader that they needed to be eating fresh meat until they all started getting sick over the winter. In case you didn't catch our most recent episode on Arctic food, what you need to know is that raw or lightly cooked meat, particularly organ meat such as spleen and liver, they contain vitamin C. And so if you eat enough of that, you can prevent scurvy. Frederick Cook had picked up that handy diet tip from the Inuit. And finally, you know, he basically prescribed penguin meat as, as medicine rather than just for the menu. And people recovered pretty promptly. And so Amundsen learned from Cook. And also, when Amundsen was in the Arctic region himself, he learned to make pemmican the native way from the Inuit, not like the industrial British version. So he added vitamin C-rich berries. And he also learned to run sled dogs. All of this was a key part of his planning for his attempt on the South Pole. Meanwhile, Scott suffered from being British. Yeah, it, uh, the British especially were particularly confused about scurvy. As you know, the British Navy had figured this out, and then they then they forgot. We've told this story before on Gastropod. The British were the first to figure out that fresh citrus would prevent scurvy, but then they kind of messed it up. They started using limes instead of lemons, and limes have less vitamin C, and then they started using preserved lime juice that had been heated, which killed the vitamin C that was there. And then eventually the British came to believe that scurvy was actually caused by bacteria. In the late 1800s, scientists were enraptured by a hot new scientific discovery called the germ theory of disease. They'd started to figure out that specific microbes, drink, cause specific diseases. In all the excitement, they forgot about citrus altogether. And so, yeah, the British had sort of lost track of the science and they'd never paid attention to, you know, the folks in the north. And there was a lot of talk about, you know, the way to avoid scurvy was to have proper hygiene, uh, fresh air, good attitude. You know, there's a lot of sort of uh, chin-up stuff going on there. And that didn't work too well. So they suffered from scurvy. Amundsen was on top of the scurvy situation, and he had another vitamin-related edge. He made his biscuits from whole wheat flour, which has B vitamins that were missing from the industrial white flour biscuits preferred by Robert Scott and the Brits. The other thing that was kind of an Achilles heel for Scott was that the British were sentimental about their dogs. Scott didn't want to use them to pull sleds. In fact, they'd even developed a couple of mechanical sleds, although those broke down. Rather than having dogs haul their sleds, they did some of that, and they even had brought ponies down, which was nuts. But they didn't learn like the Norwegians did from the Inuit and the people of the north how to run dogs. And so they did a lot of man hauling. And, you know, when you're hauling a sled, you know, with several hundred pounds on it, you know, with a team of four guys, all of you in harness, hauling this thing up a glacier up to the Antarctic, uh, East Antarctic Plateau, yeah, you can burn 10,000 calories in a day pretty, pretty easily. And you just, you know, you can't carry that much food. Meanwhile, Amundsen copied the Inuit and used dogs to haul his sleds. 
They didn't break down. The crew saved their own energy. And then as the food on the sleds got eaten and the sleds got lighter, some of the dogs became surplus to requirements. And so they were repurposed as dinner themselves. Hey, presto, more food. All that knowledge and scientific understanding and lack of sentimentality worked in Amundsen's favor. He got to the pole first. Scott did actually get there, too, 33 days after Amundsen did. He saw the Norwegian flag and was, unsurprisingly, super disappointed. He and his men turned back. But unfortunately, they never made it. They were exhausted, dejected, suffering from hunger and likely malnutrition. Famously, one of the men's toes had become badly frostbitten, and he was slowing down the team because he could hardly walk. So one night, he told the others, quote, I am just going outside and maybe some time. And he wandered out into the cold to die. Eventually, Scott and his crew members all died. They died just 11 miles away from a food depot. Actually, the depot was in the wrong place. If things had gone according to plan, they would have already come across it. It's kind of a ridiculously tragic story. And so the heroic era drew to a close. But today, there are at least a thousand people living on Antarctica at any given moment, and they all need to eat. So is hoosh still on the menu at the South Pole? That story after the break. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today, there are about 70 bases on Antarctica. Some operate year-round. Some are only inhabited during the summer months. There's new bases being built every year. Some of this is geopolitics. Everybody, you know, nations that can afford it want to have a foot in the door in case, you know, when or if Antarctica uh, gets divvied up as, as private land for resources or whatnot. There is a treaty that governs that right now that, that, that no one owns any part of Antarctica Um, set aside for science. Basically, after Amundsen won the race to reach the South Pole, Antarctica was kind of ignored for a few decades. But then ships got better, planes became more common, there was better machinery, and we all, as humanity, decided that it was an important place to do research. And nowadays, with planes and bigger ships and big modern bases with electricity, 
eating in the Antarctic is a lot easier. The cuisine changes, the, uh, becomes much more like what you eat at home, and it becomes, you know, a job that you go to and, and, and you know, an experience that you have rather than a survival experience. But food is still important there. Remember how your body craves a lot of extra calories when you're outside in the cold? As a human being? Wow, food in Antarctica is the most important thing to you often on any given day. It's like, what am I next going to get to eat because I'm so bloody cold? (laughs) And treats are still essential. You always have a good range of desserts. I think one thing that's been a consistent from the earliest days of of Antarctic life is you really, really want to have a good baker. It makes everybody happy. If you don't like the chicken or the the potatoes, you know, at least you've got a good piece of cake or a donut or, or whatnot. Jason says the food on the biggest American base, McMurdo, it used to be pretty bad cafeteria food when the U.S. Navy was running it, though it did get better after the National Science Foundation took it over. But even so, other countries' bases do have a bit of a better reputation than ours. There was always a lot of jealousy if someone managed to somehow get a trip up the coast to the Italian base, which I was very close to getting one time, but never happened. There's an Italian base called Terra Nova that's farther up the coast in um, on the Ross Sea. And by all accounts, the food was extraordinary. There's a French base called de Monteville, quite a ways away, that is also famous for its foods. But even today, a Roseau-like wizard in the kitchen who's trying to make the perfect French patisserie, they don't have it easy, at least at the South Pole. You know, like the pole is at 9,300 feet above sea level. It's two miles of ice beneath it, basically. And it's incredibly dry. The humidity is, is negligible, essentially. And the altitude plays a huge role in the cooking as well. When you're that high up, the atmospheric pressure changes, and this affects the boiling point of water. Jason told us that most cookbooks for cooking at altitude stop at around 7,000 feet. But if you're at the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station, you'd be cooking at 9,300 feet. So if you're trying to boil water at pole, for example, it boils at 189 degrees. And so the water's boiling, but it's not actually cooking your food at the same rate. And so it can take like four hours to make a soup for, you know, a large group of people just to make a basic soup. Baking is just off the charts weird. For his book, Jason spoke to the chef at the South Pole Station at the time. She says, you know, when new chefs show up or new bakers show up, she says, don't even bother trying to make muffins. Because the way the bubbles act, you know, in a dough is different. Your ingredients, you know, your flour basically has no moisture content at all, even less than it would at home. So, but yeah, the ratios all change between your liquids and your uh, flour and whatnot. Pro tip from South Pole Bakers, Jason says that because of the low humidity, you typically have to increase your flour and liquid and decrease sugar, fats, and rising agents. But the only way to know exactly how much is to experiment. Then you need to consider that the altitude means that the bubbles in your dough will expand faster, and so your bread and cakes often rise too fast, overflow their pans, and then collapse. Plus, because moisture boils off at a lower temperature, the crust will brown before the interior is even close to cooked. Cake may be essential for morale at the South Pole, but wow, does it sound like a hassle. At the South Pole, another issue is that it's, yes, incredibly cold out. And so if you've been storing your food at those temperatures, it takes a really long time for dinner to thaw. Cans of fruits and vegetables can take a full week to defrost, and large cuts of meat can take twice that. Even today, on all the bases, carbs and canned and frozen foods still form the bulk of the menu in Antarctica. Fresh food is not nearly as rare as it used to be, but it is still treasured. We're getting planes all the time during the summer, Antarctic summer, and so we get freshies, uh, as we call them, from New Zealand on a regular basis. Not as often as we'd like, and it sort of depends on the weather, you know, because you get, 
Antarctica is famous for its bad weather, and so you can not get flights for you know weeks at a time. Uh, and they're prioritizing other cargo, and so freshies don't necessarily show up. And so it's rare, but not you know kind of hallelujah rare. Some of the bases do have small greenhouses. There's even one at the U.S. base at the South Pole, which is pretty high tech. It's kind of a model for uh, what they eventually hope to use on a lunar base. So, yeah, small greenhouse, but basically it's not going to feed, you know, a thousand people on a regular basis, right? You get a few tomatoes, you get you get some salad. A few leafy greens wouldn't necessarily be something to get super excited about back home. But small delicacies, fresh food, fruitcake, chips and chocolate, these kinds of treats have always punched above their weight in the harsh conditions of Antarctica, and they still do today. Jason told us about an annual ritual called the Midwinter Auction, which takes place at the South Pole in the sunless days of deep winter and is all about food. That's the midpoint in the winter where you can look, at least in your imagination, to the sun coming back you know, in a few months' time. And so it's always been a big feast and celebration. Michelle Gentil, she was a chef there. She told Jason how the auction tradition got started. There were just a few snacks left at the little South Pole store, you know, where you can just get you know, snacks and pharmacy stuff, that kind of thing. And um, there was, you know, like a Snickers bar and a, and some other rods and ends. So they decided to turn it into an auction. And uh, somebody paid like 10 bucks for the last Snickers bar or something. And somebody paid $66 absurdly for the last bag of Cool Ranch Doritos. And as Michelle said, she said, for that price, I I hope he at least slept with it once. If there's a lesson to be learned from the story of dining in Antarctica, it's that you have to be in the Antarctic to really feel that kind of passion for food. We talked to Lizzie just before she set off for the Antarctic summer, and we asked her what she was going to miss most. Strawberries. Uh, it's strawberry season in New Zealand, and, and I'm about to head away from the best of the summer fruit and vegetable season, and I just find myself buying boxes and boxes of strawberries and eating them every day. And also anything crunchy, because when you're out in the field, you don't have access to that fresh uh, produce. And so you just really miss kind of raw, crunchy, good things. Thanks this episode to Jason Anthony and Lizzie Meek. We have links to Jason's book and Lizzie's work at the Antarctic Heritage Trust on our website. And in our special newsletter for supporters of the show, we'll also have the story of the whiskey Shackleton left behind and how Lizzie's team not only preserved it, but helped recreate it. You can get that newsletter by becoming a supporter of the show today. Thanks also to our superstar producer, Claudia Guy. We'll be back with a brand new episode in two weeks. Till then. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You, dear listener, already know about the transformative power of food. You're probably thinking about food right now, aren't you? Look, we get it. Sometimes a craving is more than a craving. It's a calling that you have to indulge, even if it takes you thousands of miles to get there. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Support for this show comes from Nine West. Winter's finally coming to a close, but you might still fall the very ground beneath your feet with the hottest new trends from Nine West. Nothing beats the confidence the perfect little piece can give you. And their new collections of footwear, apparel, and accessories will let you take on the world in style. Use their Need It Now edit 
also known as the Nine Edit, to search effortlessly through trends like Western-style boots, loafers, and more. It's time to wear our confidence, ladies. We can't be contained. Because this spring at Nine West, we are infinite. Buy now and get 15% off with code PODCAST24. Podcast.